Daniel, welcome to the show. So glad you could be here. Um, how was your day? How are you, how are you doing? Would you like to introduce yourself? So my name is Daniel Allison Keating Jr. Um, I am currently a, a senior, sort of, whatever that means. Uh, I have enough credits to be considered a senior, but I'm doing two degrees right now. So that means that it's senior status. I guess I'll be a fifth year senior or I could just double up on junior year, which honestly I think <laughs> sounds more fun because it gives me an opportunity to be like neophytic for a longer period of time. Neo, what does neophytic mean? It's like amateurish. Uh, does that come from like neophyte? Yes. Uh, okay. Correct. That's exactly it. All right. So you'd rather be a double junior than a super senior. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Mm, yeah, I guess that has better connotations because no one's like, I'm a super senior. I'm like proud of it. But like, I'm a double junior. I wouldn't That's mind better. being a super senior. I think that it comes with its own set of advantages and disadvantages. But the cool thing about mm -hmm. being a junior is that I'm allowed to make, you know, junior mistakes That's for true. a longer period of time. And it's, yeah. our ability to make mistakes and not have consequences result from them in in such a crazy way that it would if I was a senior is, you know, a, a benefit that I mostly take for granted, but I know that I probably shouldn't. <laughs> Yeah, well, what, so you're, you said you're doing two majors. What what degrees are you, you pursuing? So I'm pursuing uh, two degrees and then one at the Eisenberg School of Management, and that degree is in management, um, which is fun. It's kind of like basic high school competency degree 2.0, but with, you know, higher education fees attached to it. It's just to essentially prep people to enter the labor force or rather delay them from reaching the labor force until there's enough space for them. Um, that's, that's kind of like the latent function of, of the management major. The, the manifest function of the uh, management major is to try and get people interested in, I guess, organizational behavior or organizational theory. Management is, is sort of a broad field that encompasses a lot of stuff. Um, one of the other things that it encompasses is um, organizational theory, which has a fun subsection called organizational culture within it. And that is my second degree. I'm doing that in BDIC, which stands for bachelor's degree with individual concentration. And so that's, that essentially means you're making your own major, right? You pick your own curriculum, you pick your own classes where you go and you have to get other people to kind of like sign off on that. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole administrative process that goes along with creating your own major and they make it difficult enough that not everyone will do it because imagine if all 20,000 students at UMass Amherst decided tomorrow, like, all right, I'm going to make my own major. There's, there's no way administratively that the school would be able to carry on functioning mm -hmm. and, and society writ large, if every person in the entire world was like, I'm going to make my own major. I think society would in there inherently collapse because there wouldn't be any engineers left in the world. That's true. But yeah. you never know. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting to think how like there's that huge necessity of like silos, like we have to have these people study this and do this, 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 and this. And I don't think everyone would pick their own major because it comes with like a tremendous, you need a tremendous amount of agency and ability to deal with uncertainty because like you're kind of just going for it. But what drew me to the, the idea that I could create my own major is um, I play Pathfinder, which is like an allegory to Dungeons and Dragons. And if anybody has ever heard of Dungeons and Dragons, they know that it, they probably know that it comes with its own obscure set of rules that is pretty much an all-encompassing way of creating a fictional reality within which you exist uh, as a character. And it's really fun to learn all of the rules and then figure out where the game can be broken open because you can get into some interesting and obscure technicalities if you're a good enough rules lawyer. So I took that sort of same rules lawyering mindset to school um, and uh, essentially it allows me to like double dip and get extra credit for being in two majors that are relatively similar to one another, but in a 
addition to the, the double dipping, it also allows me to break out of the traditional track of a management major student by allowing me to indulge my curiosities in, you know, more liberal arts like mm. anthropology, ethnography, other stuff like that. What kind of, where do your curiosities lay in those fields? Like, how does that, how have you combined management in those Eisenberg classes with anthropology and ethnographies and these other encompassing fields? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, a gen, I'm pretty generally curious about all sorts of things. And it's, um, it's hard to pin down. I mean, I could list my top five. I'd say probably how, how people interact with each other. Just this sort of, I'm really fascinated about the ground rules of humanity and how mm. humanity chooses to express itself through individuals. So there's this big interplay between individual actors how people act on their own as as an individual within a society and then as group actors how people act within the sort of ecosystem of like a tribe or um a, a team for example mm -hmm. some sort of group dynamics and ultimately the reason why society is the way it is right now why we've been able to become so successful is the combination of a bunch of different things including um, the ability to um, pass on thoughts to other people through communication. That's really helpful. And then with that also comes the ability to uh, disperse language, or sorry, disperse labor through groups. So if you form a group, then uh, the ability to get more work done is is available to you and you can you know, disperse these crazy thoughts that other people on the team might not necessarily fully understand, but they don't need to because they can help you achieve something greater for the group that you're trying to pull for, you know? Mm. And that kind of ties into like the idea of specialization. It's like, I don't, you don't want everyone to be, have to, to have to be able to grow their own food and administer their own medicine and do all these other like complex things. But if we can find this group of people is really good at doing X and this person's good at Y. You can, you don't have everyone, you don't need everyone to know the whole alphabet. You only need them to know the one letter and then all together they form the alphabet and it yeah. functions like that kind of, that one coherent system. That's absolutely mm. it. Yeah, that's the fun stuff. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm interested in how do we build out societies that have the whole alphabet and all the letters like each other. So mm. I'm particularly interested in the, the art and science of making people feel fulfilled in their lives. And that's kind of what I'm dedicating my, uh, my undergraduate career to is trying to figure out like, you know, fulfillment sciences and learning mm. about what, what are the, what are the social structures that need to be in place and um, what sort of, norms of behavior, underlying assumptions, all that good stuff needs to go into a society in order to make people feel really good about being a member of that group. Can you, can you expound on like fulfillment science? Like what, what is that? How does that like operate? Oh man. So Dan Buettner is probably the, the ultimate guru on that. Um, he is a guy who is really fascinating and worked for National Geographic and then started writing about um, blue zones, which are areas where super centenarians live. And a super centenarian is somebody who lives to 100 years and older. Um, so there are a bunch of different places around the world. Um, there are like the Seventh-day Adventists out in California. There are a couple of places. There's one in Greece. There's, I think, Okinawa, Japan. Yeah, Japan's one of them. Yeah, Santa Teresa in Costa Rica, which mm -hmm. I had the opportunity to actually go and visit for my 28th birthday, um, which was really fun. And they are very, very happy people. I'll, I can confirm having seen it firsthand. Um, and I was pretty happy while I was there, too. So, I mean, there's something to be said for those metrics. Uh, you know, metrics have their own their own faults with validity and applicability. Like, how do you quantify satisfaction in large populations of people? But if you they they do lend some credence to the actual atmosphere of a place. Um, so yeah, Dan Butner, if you're interested in it. Dan Butner. Yeah. Right, and he he's kind of like the 
would you say, founder of status or fulfillment science? No, I, I don't know if it would be the founder, but he's definitely the most accessible mm. uh, person. Like for for somebody who is a neophyte in fulfillment, <laughs> uh, yeah, he's a good place to start because he throws the most facts at you the fastest, and they're also the most understandable. Okay, I think did he have a TED talk? He's probably think, got a bunch. I think I've seen something on him. What what were the the factors that like created these blue zones where people lived like super long times? Oh man, you'd have to read his book for that. I I'm not an expert in it. The the main things are like a sense of purpose, getting up in the morning, a community that checks on you if you don't, for example, show up to the morning meeting. Mm. Um, rituals, you know, healthy healthy rituals and norms of. Uh, engagement with your community, um, and then like physical labor, mm-hmm. actually moving around, obviously, and and diet is also super yeah. pertinent. I mean, it's a whole it's a whole ecosystem that exists, and um, sort of like the, everything rests on each other. Mm-hmm. You know. Now I'm I'm interested in that the physical labor part because. From whatever I saw, I don't know if it was Dan Buettner, but it was, it was physical labor, but it wasn't the way we kind of view it as like exercise. It was like the things they did were already like meaningful. It's like chopping wood, carrying water, like walking up like places. It's washing the dishes, yeah, physically with your hands instead of putting loading things in the Mm. dishwasher. So now, and I know you used to work at a gym, like, and you work out quite frequently yourself. Do you feel a difference, like, in a sense of satisfaction? when you're like chopping wood or like doing some like task oriented physical labor versus exercise for the sake of like exercise. Well, the task oriented labor is, is nice because at the end of the exercise, you will have completed a task mm. and that always feels good. Um, sometimes exercising is the task, but it's, it's definitely not an empty feeling. You mm. do feel great having like some people like to look back and get caught up on the metrics of like, Oh, I ran a seven-minute mile. That feels really good to me. Mm. Um, so, me personally, I like to uh, swing kettlebells. I'm a, I have an 88-pound kettlebell that I named Cecily. Yeah, she's a beast. Oh my God. I um I taped her. I taped the the kettlebell and then I drew an oni on it uh, with a sharpie. So yeah, I'm always I'm always swinging that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I I like that a lot because it's it's fun to have an eighty eight pound ball that I can just like swing consistently. What like how does how do you do that? How like, do I do like, it? How do you physically do that like without hurting yourself? Oh I um well I've I can lift things that are much heavier than eighty eight pounds. Yeah. Um and then that's a so that's a good starting point <laughs> is be able to lift things that are don't don't lift your max weight and then throw it on a kettlebell and throw your back out because yeah. that's a, a fun way to die <laughs> a long slow painful death with you being practically immobile and paralyzed yeah <laughs> and then <laughs> um and then just have good form i don't know it's a hip hinge mm, hip hinges form. hip hinges are the most basic primal human movement that you can have it's like how do we pick up children off the ground it's mm. a fucking hip hinge I, th- I think form. Can I swear on this? Is it? You can. Okay? You can say whatever the fuck you want on this. <laughs> all right. Okay. This is my podcast. We don't have any censoring bureaus going on. We're all good. Cool. cool. Um, and your language is laying the groundwork for what's acceptable here on after. So Whoa. We're we're all co-creating this together. Big responsibility. Um, I'll try to be articulate. Yeah. There. Um. I no racial slurs. Yo, it's yeah. It's like I'm not cool that's, with that. It's a big um, no. Yeah. But you can say like shit and fuck and that's allowed. Well, allowed. Sure, totally. Um, I think form forms an interesting idea because coming from like a background where like I, I was a lazy indoor like video game kid. Yeah. The idea of like oh like I don't want to like exercise because like hurt my body was like very prevalent. But like that's bullshit. It's just it's super yeah, bullshit. Form yeah, yeah totally just doing it wrong. I think it's important in yoga is like. You need someone there to be like don't do your wrists like this or you'll fuck your wrists up. And, <laughs> yes. Yeah, and uh, see, and I think how can we tie that back to organizational culture? Because you need someone to like teach you, like, oh, like, don't talk like this way because you're gonna like fuck up your relationships. Like, try like talking like this way, like invitational language, or 
more like that. It's it's helpful to have somebody who exists sort of not as a whole outsider, but somebody who can sort of remove themselves from the bounds of the society that they're operating within to organize effective norms of behavior. I mean, mm. there's there's always a gap between ideal and norm. Um, ideal is the thing that we want to happen, and that norm is the thing that actually happens. Mm. Ideally, people would talk to each other at Dining Commons. You know, innovation is one of those things that comes out of the random combination of disparate ideas and thoughts, and that tends to happen when people from various fields actually engage with each other. Mm. But so that would be the ideal, but the norm in the dining commons is you sit down and you stare at your phone. And I'm really interested in how do I transcend that norm of behavior and make the norms more uh, representative of the ideal, or at least moving toward it. Mm. Yeah, that's. It's very interesting to think of like how that's the norm because when I when I was like a freshman and sophomore. Like, first day of class you would think everyone would be like oh my god i'm gonna be with these people for the next like three months we have we're gonna have so much in common to talk about because we're in the same class like i need to get to know everyone mm -hmm. but everyone's like scrolling on their phone and it's so easy to fall into that like that anger of like all oh, the i'm surrounded by like a bunch of like well whatever yeah. but it's like this is like the norm our society is like produced and the best way i can change that norm is by turning to my left and to my right and be like hi i'm adam nice to meet you and or like approaching a stranger at the dining hall. And mm -hmm. That's what college is supposed to like be is like those those atoms can come together when they wouldn't normally. Oh yes. Um, a fun way to change norms is to make them explicit. Is to make what is going on very explicit mm -hmm. and obvious to people who are doing it. Because a lot of the time people don't realize that they sit down and have a habit loop of when I sit down, I take my phone out. When I take my phone out, I begin to scroll. And then mm. the scrolling never stops until you finish eating. Mm. And even then, you are scrolling on your way to drop those dishes into the into the dish drop. But if you point that out with like really explicit signage and constant reminders of like, it's okay to talk to strangers. Talking to strangers is good and healthy yeah. for society. Um, then the... Or if you can even... Uh, it's more helpful to point out the ideal and make the ideal explicit than it is to shame people for doing the thing that you don't want them to do. So in, instead of saying 90% um, of students sit on their phone and scroll during mm. lunch, it's, it's more helpful to say like 90% of students would prefer to talk to other people yeah. during their lunch. Or the idea, hmm, that's a... A good note because, oh, sorry, my phone. I know I should have muted this. That's oh, all right. My bad. Um. Uh. Yeah. So we were talking before about how, like, when you encourage what you want and focus on the positive, mm -hmm. it naturally outgrows the negative. So instead of being like, "Why are you on your phone all the time?" Blah blah blah. That's just gonna like make someone withdraw more. But if you go like, "Hey, like, how about we talk to like people more, yes. like strangers?" By doing that, the natural consequence if you use your phone less. Mm -hmm. Even if I use my phone less, that doesn't mean I'm gonna talk to people more because that just leaves like a void. By introducing the preferred norm and growing that, that will push out the old ineffective norm. Mm. So one of my uh, favorite ways of doing that is, is a line of thinking called appreciative inquiry. Uh, and that's a fun thing to, to go and investigate because it's an entire... Mm, kind of like design thinking it is a whole process in and of itself where you um, ideate, iterate, and then eventually at the end of things you have a, a new product. With appreciative inquiry, it's sort of like, what is going really well here? How can we do more of that? What's something that we would like to see here? How should we introduce that? Mm. What would perfect look like? So I like to use appreciative inquiry to frame almost any problem. And, I, I, you know, there are a lot of different frames that you can apply to this sort of thing. Another one of my favorites, since we're on the topic of organizational culture, or we're, we're at least 
culture adjacent. Mm. I mean, everything is culture adjacent when you really think about it. Yeah. But <laughs> since we're since we're on the topic, there there are really like three levels of cultural analysis. Um, and the the first is like the physical world. Um, so anything that you can see. So um, norms uh, is is on that list. Uh, other things that are on that list are artifacts, um, design, you know, architecture, the way the buildings in which people congregate, um, the way that people say hello to each other, how you and I will high five and celebrate that way versus um, how people in other cultures will like bow to each other when mm-hmm. they've done something really tremendous. Um, yeah, all of those are considered observable uh components of culture and then the second level up from that is the espoused values so what it is that people say we want and this is the ideal that i was just talking about earlier espoused values are closer to the ideal where norms of behavior are how um, people engage in reality so espoused values great way to check out espoused values is to go to a company's mission statement page Mm. like i like to read umass's mission statement from time to time just so i know sort of what is it exactly that everybody's shooting for and that way to bring it back to the conversation we were having earlier about rules lawyering if i ever want a rules lawyer i can say hey this doesn't fall within the mission this Mm. isn't this is a perfect example of a, a norm or a uh a rule that isn't serving the espoused values of this institution. And since the espoused values are in some way greater than the way that the organization expresses itself in the real world, you can usually have a good chance of changing ineffective uh, modes of behavior by citing the mission statement. Mm. So yeah, fun little trick for you. And I think that ties back to what we're saying about the making the norms explicit. Because I'm sure most students, I know I haven't read the mission statement of of my university and so people are like whether they know it or not there's a norm that they're being or an ideal that they're being molded to without knowing it but then when you start knowing it you can consciously take that into your process and then when you identify something you don't like that's contrary to that you can be like oh like this doesn't match with this value and most people when they hear that it's different to be like oh like i don't want to do this rule because like i don't want to do it Versus this is a system thing and like we're going to make the system better together. You, yes. And then you become, what did you say before? You need a, an accomplice. You and need like, an accomplice. That's, that's another one of my favorite yeah. things. But let me get to the third level mm, of cultural right. analysis before we get into accomplices because that's a whole other rabbit hole that we, we can go down. <laughs> so the third level um, is underlying assumptions. So underlying assumptions are uh, essentially norms of behavior and espoused values that have been taught to new members of a culture so many times that it becomes unconscious in the minds of the people who are within uh, one organization or another and that has its own culture one culture or another i suppose you could say Mm. since we're i don't want to mix our words up too much but they all sort of mean the same thing because all organizations have a culture because culture is an emergent phenomenon. And what does that mean? Well, it means that when society expresses itself within an organization, which is the preferred medium of modern societal life, a culture emerges whether we want it to or not. Mm. So it's it's just it's a thing that pops out, kind of like how when you put two people who have never met each other before and speak two different languages on an island together, they develop a pidgin language, which is directly between both of their languages. Um, that's another emergent phenomenon. Mm. Yeah, a, a pigeon, a pigeon language? A pigeon language. And it's not spelled the same way pigeon like the bird. Ah. It's spelled, I think, P-I-D-G-I-N. You might want to fact check me on that later. But yeah, anyway, so underlying assumptions is the third level of cultural analysis. So I'll, I'll sum it all up for your listeners, for your audience. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so uh, there's observable, uh, observable reality, level one. Level two, espoused values. Level three, underlying assumptions. Mm. So one of our famous underlying assumptions is we have a base 10 member system. When you count, you, it's really easy for you to count 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, et cetera, et cetera, and so on. 
Or that like is time linearity of time underlying value? Linear yep, linearity of time is also superb underlying value. Absolutely. Um and this is one of the things that's really present in um or present or absent depending on what language you use. Um so we have a future tense, whereas mm. some languages do not have future tenses and they see a future as part of the present, which is why some societies are really, really great at saving money mm. and others are not because we differentiate future self from present self and they see future self as present self. And therefore, it makes more sense mm. to save money for present self. That's really interesting in my in my economics class right now, we're talking about like how a lot of our economy discounts the future. It's mm -hmm. the assumption that like the benefits that we accrue now, even if they're small, is worth tremendous cost in the future because like one, it's not our problem because it's in the future. And two, our money system will somehow magically like, be worth more and we can deal with it then. So that like if we have the values now, we can invest it and do whatever. But that doesn't work out that way. And that also doesn't work on the environment, which is like. Mm -hmm. it, it's not a thing mm -hmm. that it's a finite system so when you take it now it does it later and so much of our environmental impacts are coming from this like neoliberal economic assumption that like we can just deal with it in the future um when we can't especially when if you view like all natural things as substitutable with human made goods mm -hmm. that system works but that's obviously not true because no human is going to invent like a better way to like get clean drinking water than like the sky already is done. Yeah, so, yeah. Nobody's going to invent a rainforest. <laughs> no, like you can't, you can't do that. So I think that's probably an underlying value that we have. And until you explicitly point it out, which like this class does, which is like the point of like a class. Yes. Then like, you're like, oh my God, I've been operating with this like faulty system this entire time. I know. And yeah. it's really spooky. So this is one of the, the scary things about organizational culture is that once you start getting at underlying assumptions, the ground starts to shake and you begin to really question your own identity and mm. you start to see yourself as an outsider within your own culture. And that's really scary for a lot of people. It can be very isolating. But for the curious individual like yourself, it can be very liberating. Uh, and you can sort of like look at things not necessarily with a god's eye because you do have your own biases mm. and that's one of the things you have to be conscious of as an organizational analyst or a cultural analyst rather um so yeah it's it's difficult to uh observe culture from the observable reality or infer culture from observable reality because we're always bringing our own biases mm. into things now i think a really it's really hard to kind of get that outsider view um i think for a lot of people which is understandable because we're it's like the fish doesn't know it's swimming in water. We don't know we're like walking through air. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, the the three things that have like revealed that the most to me are like physical travel, meditation and like mental travel through psychedelics. And you kind of you get that God's eye view and you can see these like systems working on you. Mm -hmm. But like from like an out of body kind of perspective and you're like, oh, all these forces are like enacting upon me and I wasn't even conscious of it. I can like work one become more conscious of it and then to work to like work around it because now i'm aware of it and this is like an ancient ancient tradition of doing that and people do that with lunar cycles people do that with like body cycles it's like all these cycles come together and there are societal cycles of like boom and bust with the economy and yes sir. all that but we have to determine which one of that's like what of that is real like and what of that is like societally imposed mm-hmm yeah, hmm. I mean, so psychedelics is one way to do it. Another way to do it is actual physical travel. And then a third way to do it is you can have this uh, rare disorder that I can't remember the name of it right now, but essentially you disassociate from your own identity. It's not disassociative identity disorder, um, but it's essentially the a feeling of haunting your own life from a distance, as if you were to play like a third-person video game and you can see the character like walking around on the hmm. screen. And you just have that sort of third-person perspective of your own life. And I I, I fully admit to having uh, lived that reality for, I don't know, as long as I can remember. I've, I always had this saying, ever since I was like a little kid, I remember being four, uh, in fourth grade and saying, like, I feel like I'm haunting my own life. Yeah, hmm. it's bizarre. But it's also really fun to play with because then you get the opportunity to 
uh, create space between your observed reality and your inferences from the observed reality. Mm. Does that make sense? I think I, I kind of get the picture. I'm going to probe a little more if that, that's all right. So like when you say you're haunting like your own life, does that like you don't kind of see yourself like in the driver's seat almost or like you kind of like, can you just like elaborate a little more on that? Yeah, sure. So um, let's see. Reality exists right outside uh, outside the world. And then there's your brain and there's a space between reality and your brain mm where all of the past experiences that you've had in your entire life interpret the reality that exists outside of your brain. So mm -hmm. there's reality, interpretation, and then brain. Right. So when, when I disassociate, uh, I sort of exist within that interpretive zone. And I try and, I don't know, think without... You know how in, in yoga they say, just notice that your muscle feels tight. Don't give it any judgment. Just sort of notice that it's there. Mm. I do the same exact thing, and I have done the same exact thing with, like, I remember being a little kid and having to dress up for a funeral or dressing up for Christmas and saying, like, why are we dressing up right now? What is, uh, what is sacred about this? And is there anything sacred going on? Like, what? why do we hold some things with more reverence than others. Why, what is the process of reverence? Like, what are some rituals that I engage in in my own life? Like, the happy birthday song. I used to wonder why we have a song for happy birthday. And I still kind of wonder from time to time. I, I kind of know the answer now. Um, but yeah, when I was a little kid, I was like, why do we sing the same song at everybody's birthday? Because everyone's different. Everybody has a different birthday. I mean, we have the same days of the year, sure, like my birthday is June 28th and I had a friend whose birthday was also June 28th. Um, but why do we sing the same song? Because we're different people. Yeah. And why do we identify with like that one point in time even? Like why the, the societal institution of birthday is like still relatively new as well. Like... Really? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, like to have a birthday, you need to have a marked day to have a marked day, you have to have a calendar system. And to have a calendar system, you have to assume there's like a lot of assumptions about like how time is organized. True, so, true, true, yeah. Like most, I don't think most human beings, in terms of like historically, like we're like, oh, it's my birthday, because when you ask like when was I born, they're probably gonna be like like sometime in the summer. <laughs> I don't know, like they're gonna be like June thirteenth at nine thirty seven, because it's like to have those time measuring devices. Yeah, like, that's relatively like. New tech. Industrial, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, moderately new tech, mm. totally. Interesting. So yeah, so so your the curiosity there was like you were able to. To me, it just sounds like you were able to like question the system, like as like from a degree away from it from a younger age. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's really, that's it. You nailed it. Interesting. Yeah, and that it, so I wasn't really interested in college for the longest time because I was interested in just sort of getting more practice with using that sort of interpretive mindset. How do I go through and experience the most life that I can experience before I like assign any, uh, any language to it? I, I don't need mm. academics to, to, I don't need, I didn't need the verbiage to experience things, but now that I'm interested in uh, the academy and and sort of fleshing out an intellectual idea and making it possible for other people to interpret it and communicate that idea, uh, now I'm sort of more interested in the verbiage of it, which mm -hmm. is why I decided to come back to school after doing all the other things that I did. So would you, you mentioned that you weren't interested in school. Can you kind of give us a brief story of how you, from fourth grade questioning about your birthday to <laughs> to now yeah. whatever degree you're comfortable how that like how that evolved how that your thought process evolved what you did in that time to like enforce your curiosity oh yeah sure totally well i don't know what i did to necessarily enforce my curiosity but i definitely indulged it for yeah. sure um when yeah when i got out of high school i, I um 
my my dad tried to make me go to community college and I just wasn't feeling it because I thought community college was for failures and I always ever since I was in fourth grade um I was like well Mozart wrote a symphony when he was five like I'm never ever going to amount to anything uh and I just I had that Mm. in my mind for whatever reason it was just this driving force of like I'm never going to be good enough uh there's no point in even trying to catch up to these other people because every day that I'm trying to catch up they're pushing the lead further and further ahead um and I didn't understand that that wasn't true until I went and expressed my own agency and tried to do something that I was personally invested in, which was I was interested in uh, modeling. I was really curious about the the sort of um, artistic expression side of things. I did a lot of theater when I was in high school, and so I really loved getting into character. I loved mm-hmm. improv. I loved trying to um, emote what other people had written down, like taking a script and becoming that thing that was in the script. Uh, I really liked, yeah, that sort of, it's it's kind of a disassociative practice. Um, so yeah, I guess I was leaning heavily into that disassociative practice and um, decided to go and move to um, Boston and do some uh, modeling in Boston. And then I got good enough at that that I was able to afford to move to Manhattan Um, and then had fun in Manhattan and I, you know, was bumping into people from all different socioeconomic spheres that I had never bumped into before. And so that's another place where I sort of indulged my analytical mind and, um, and my curiosity and tried to figure out like, all right, what are the rituals that these people engage in? What, what exactly are the, the finance guys doing in the meatpacking district when they're trying to pick up other models? Like why do they why do they stay out until 2 a.m. and then show up at Wall Street the next day like hung over out of their goddamn minds <laughs> what is at work here and it was a it was a very eye-opening experience because um where i grew up that that didn't exist you know you could be a construction worker or you could be a nurse or if you're really smart you could be a doctor or engineer or whatever I didn't know what venture capital was. Like I had I had some semblance of an idea, but I wasn't super well read in the the professions that exist within the world and how many different ways there are to contribute to society. Um, and so when I went to uh, Boston and then Manhattan and bumped elbows with all the interesting people that I hung out with, it opened my eyes and made me realize that the vast majority of the world is way more lost than I am. And for whatever reason, incapable of expressing their own agency um, and initiative. So when I uh, turned 24, they sort of, they sort of kick you out of the fashion industry. They don't really kick you out. Nobody explicitly says like, all right, pal, time to pack up your bags. Unless they're a dear, dear friend of yours, in which case you thank them and buy them a, like a bottle of champagne and say, bon voyage. Mm-hmm. Um, but Are you comfortable in that chair? Yeah, sure, oh, yeah, no, I'm good. Thank Just you. Make sure. Yeah, appreciate it. We're working on the studio layout. So. <laughs> I like what you've got in here. Thank you, thank you. Sorry, you were saying, uh, I was, bottle of champagne. Bottle of champagne, and then, yeah, no, I decided it was time to get out of Manhattan. Um, because like slowly but surely you start to get fewer and fewer jobs. Um, and for women, it's even younger. It's like 22, I think is when they start to like get, uh, get a little bit less work. But anyways, I recognized it was time to leave and I decided to, um, gain some real skills, some real hands work skills. My family is a bunch of arborists. My grandfather, uh, rest in peace. He started a... Uh, tree company, an arborism company in uh, Swampscott, Massachusetts. Mm. And he did that from age 18 until he had four sons and they grew the business. And I, as the oldest grandchild, sort of um, became the fifth son and inherited all the all the jobs that needed to be done as a result of that. So uh, physical manual labor wasn't something that I was necessarily afraid of. But I was more interested in the in the creative uh, pursuits. 
So I decided when I was going to retire from fashion, all right, well, I, the pendulum swung in the side of creativity for the longest time. Why don't I swing it back to the side of um, manual labor and like good, hard, connect me to the earth type of, uh, type of work where I can not sort of ground my identity and what it is that I'm physically able to produce, but just learn skills. I had been hanging out with a bunch of VC people who they had all of their Maslow's hierarchy of needs met. Mm. And the only thing that they couldn't control was an apocalypse, an apocalypse scenario. So for whatever reason, I had it in my head that like, I don't know if an apocalypse does happen, it would be really nice to know how to grow your own food. No, sorry, just to clarify. So yeah, yeah. when you say VC, I'm assuming you mean venture capitalist. Yeah. And when you mean hierarchy of needs, what I'm hearing is that every physical, like every need that they have was like met. And the only thing they couldn't control was the literal end of the world. Yes. And so that was their only and primary concern. Correct. That's you absolutely nailed it. So I decided it might be fun to learn how to farm just in case anything crazy happens. Okay. Um, and so I did that for three years. I worked on a farm. I learned how to grow my own food. Uh, I was vegan. I ate the, the food that I grew out of the ground myself, the seeds that I had put into mm. the soil and then watched them grow and nurtured them and weeded and uh, hoed and did all that crazy stuff. And then finally uh, harvested in uh, the latter half of the season. And um, that was in, you know, uh, a rather, um, you know, bucolic farm in New England, uh, an apple orchard. I've never heard that word, bucolic? Bucolic, yeah. It means like countryside. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, <laughs> uh, thanks for asking. Um, you always got, look, if there's a word I hear, words are like Pokemon to me. Like, I want to I wanna catch them all. <laughs> all right. So anytime I see, I hear a new word, I'm like, oh, a new word. And now I can like drop that, and then someone's like, "What the hell does bucolic mean?" And I'll be like, "Oh, it means this. It means like countryside." Yeah. And then <laughs> we're just changing the language. Yeah. yeah. So, so I worked on the farm with a bunch of Romanian guys, mm. and this is where I started to get really interested in culture because keeping up with them was next to impossible for somebody who didn't grow up doing farm work. These guys have been doing farm work since they could walk, essentially, like picking strawberries, weeding miles and miles and miles of fields. And to be able to keep up with them is uh, is not an easy task. I had to put my full being into that for a long period of time. And, and they'll still kick my ass, but nobody plants onions faster than this guy. So <laughs> um, anyways, flipping, uh, I, I started to wonder um, why they were so good at working. I mean, it would be 104 degrees in the middle of July. And these guys, like there was, there was a little complaining, but nothing compared to what you would have with uh, your, your regular American labor. Like this is why the argument for immigrants is so strong because there's no one who wants to do the job that these guys were doing. And nobody capable of doing it at the rate that they were capable of doing it at. Um, so one day it was it was really hot outside, and I decided that I would go into the farm store um, to go and uh, get some water bottles because we had run out of water in our in our big jug. Um, so I went and I grabbed some water bottles, and then I came back. Um, and while I was in the store getting the water bottles, uh, there were a couple of complaints by the people who were working in the store, all Americans. Um, they were saying things like, oh, it's kind of cold in here. There's nothing to do. It's kind of dark. There's not a lot of sunlight. And I was like, you guys can come and weed strawberries with us if you want. And they all said, no, that's all right. We'll stay in here. And so it was just like little passing complaints, nothing crazy, nothing that made you think that they were um, despondent by any means. But when I went back out into the field, these guys got the water bottles and we were just like, you know, one of them poked a hole in the top and was spraying his friends and stuff. And they were just like celebrating in the, in the joy of hard work uh, and saying like, all right, when the day is over, I'm going to cook some barbecue and drink six Coronas. Mm. Uh, and yeah, everybody was laughing and having a great time. And I started to wonder like, why is it that these guys are doing the work that they're doing and celebrating in it and the other people who are in arguably 
way more comfortable positions, why are they complaining? Uh, and uh, I have talked to them a bunch of times about what it is to be from Romania, what it is to be from Eastern Europe. Um, is it Eastern Europe? Where are they from? It's about Eastern Europe. Yeah, it's kind of it's medium Eastern Europe. Eastern Southern Europe. Yeah, it's Ro the Balkans. Yeah, they're from they're from Romania, so yeah. <laughs> um, they said it's our culture, and I was like, all right. I keep hearing this word. I don't have a definition for it, and I'm fed up with it. I'm sick of this. So I used to work with uh, with a, my phone in my pocket all the time, and then I started bringing headphones, and I would listen to podcasts and audiobooks while I was working. And so all of the podcasts and audiobooks started to become books about culture. Mm -hmm. Somebody, geez, somebody please give me a definition for this obscure thing. So if anybody makes it to this far in the episode and they want to have a field day with like a college recruiter, for example, somebody who is trying to get them to come and work for company X or Y, and they say, oh, you're going to love it here. They have a great culture. Ask them, ask that recruiter, hey, you said you have a great culture. Can you define that? Can you tell me exactly what you mean by they have a great culture? I can pretty much guarantee that they're going to list observable artifacts, which is only the first level of culture. Mm. And that is, or at, sometimes they might reference the mission statement, which is an espoused value, and not necessarily the norm of the way that the organization operates. <laughs> so so it's very likely if I, when I'm talking to this person, like, oh, they have like level one, like they have like, Great lunch facilities yep. and like oh ping people, pong tables. ping pong table people mm -hmm. pat you on the back and then maybe they're like oh we really value um, hard work and integrity. creativity and integrity but yeah. no one's gonna be like oh we have a great organizational culture because we realize that like time is not linear <laughs> or that we we understand that like there's no such thing as the self like that would be a, a hard organization to run oh yes absolutely it's <laughs> totally fair so. <laughs> Uh, and then if you listen to college recruiters, they'll say like, oh, if you really want to get a feel for the culture, listen to some uh, press statements by some of the executives. Mm -hmm. Those executives are so groomed, so like public facing and used to doing things to make the organization look good. Yeah. that You're never, ever going to be able to infer the actual culture of the organization from watching one of these practiced hands go into a press conference to only say good things about it. It's mm. just bad advice. It's like saying to somebody who's fresh out of college, like, oh, go pet that tiger. It's nice and fluffy. It'll be fine. Just because it's yeah. fluffy doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to maim you. Yeah. And that's the same exact thing with organizations. I don't want to list an actual organization at the risk that, uh, you know, this might get distributed. This, and I might... this podcast is big, so, like, we really don't want to piss off too much power. Uh, we have a, a far reach. Yes. So, <laughs> so but but the the point is, uh, some of these organizations are framed to look fluffy and delightful to hang out with. Mm. But if you walk up to to one of them and and pet them, you're gonna get mauled. Yeah. I mean, that's what branding is, right? It's like yes. Eminem. Or, or not to pick on Eminem. Uh, that just for some reason the first thing that came to my mind. Love it. That they're they have great marketing. They have characters for their M and M. They have in like they have the weird like green like sexy M and M, and they have like the stupid dumb one. So it's like oh, it's a family of M and Ms. That's cute and fluffy. I can pet that. But I'm sure they don't like. I'm sure there's some like fucked up practices that they have with like harvesting or. So I'm sure someone fell in a vat one time and they just mixed it <laughs> in the M and Ms. And it's like oh, we'll just label it as a special flavor and. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's like I think that's why like a college tour is so important. And I lament for those who have to like do this over Zoom, but like I can go on a college tour and yes. like this is what happened to me with Sam when I went to Salem. I went on that college tour and like there were so many other like mental problems I was dealing with at the time that I like didn't have the wherewithal to notice this. But I was like, mm. I haven't like seen a bunch of people like on campus playing frisbee. Or I haven't like seen yeah, yeah. like study groups. I just like it's empty here. My brain should have been like, this is like bad, but the the tour guide was like, Oh, it's fluffy, it's fine, it's great. When I came to UMass, like, they were saying that, but, like, I didn't need them to say that because I saw people laughing and having a good time. And yes. I was in the dining hall, and I could hear all these people talking and, like, doing this stuff. And I saw professors walking by. Mm -hmm. That's the... Someone can tell you it's fluffy, but, like, once you actually feel it, like, you know, like, 
is this just like bullshit fake leather or mm-hmm. is there depth here? Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But yeah. to, to tie this back around, you are in, so you're with these Romanians and it's part of their culture to just work hard and like bust their balls in the field. And take joy in that. Mm. And that's really the, the crux of it is to like, they, everybody who came over from Romania was all related in some way. And so there was a, a bond, there was a brotherhood that they, as a family unit, take care of a portion of land and support a community as a result of their effort. Mm-hmm. And there's a real pride in being able to help other people through the through through your labor, whether that's building a house to protect people so that they can survive the winter, or if that's by raising pigs so that you can you know cure the meat and eat it all winter, or you know anything like that, or grow wine. They're tre- they're absolutely tremendous at making wine. Um, many of them travel to Italy and work in the vineyards there, or Spain and work in the vineyards there, Austria, and then they all bring back grapes to their little hometown. And some of the grapes take, some of the grapes don't, but at the end of the season, they make wine, and it is incredible. Now, you have you went to Romania with these people, right? I did, yeah. They invited me there once they, once they saw me, like, tr- trying to, to find joy in hard work. Uh, and, and I did, I think successfully lay the, lay the grounds and bonds of brotherhood with these guys because they invited me to, um, spend Christmas with them. So I got the opportunity to engage with their culture and many of the Christmas rituals that I wish that I had done after a couple of years of really spending uh, some time in organizational culture books. Mm. Uh, That way I can go back to their hometown and be like, oh, this is exactly what I'm reading about Mm. now. But it was kind of nice because when I I later um, quit working at the farm, and so the reason why I quit working at the farm was because I couldn't find a good answer for what the heck is culture in an audiobook. And I was like, I gotta go back to college. There's no other way around this. I gotta go back. So I did. I went back and where before I was a terrible student, dropped out of community college with a 2.1. Originally in high school, I had to repeat junior year, unfortunately. Now I'm getting like, you know, 4.0 on the dean's list, getting cool internships, transferred into Eisenberg with a, with a decent GPA. And um, now I'm, now I'm a, technically a double scholar, which is really weird uh, for, for somebody who spent so much time like weeding strawberries, it's bizarre to have that sort of addended to your name, but, um, what, what, what is a double scholar, a double scholar. So, um, I won some cool scholarships and the title that comes with winning, uh, one of them is called the Gilman scholarship or, um, the Gilman scholar program, I suppose. And that's sponsored by the United States state department and they will, um, pay you to, go abroad to uh, areas of critical need is what it's called, the verbiage of it, um, in order to do a research project or study at their schools. So I have the opportunity to go to um, South Korea because I won the scholarship. Mm. And the title that comes with uh, winning the scholarship is Gilman Scholar. So I won another scholarship that I'm using to go to Singapore because they're one of the coolest case studies around on organizational culture. and that scholarship also came with the title scholar. So now I have two. Whoa. Yeah. So it's, what's it's weird? What, what's popping in Singapore? Why is why is it so interesting there? Oh my God, Lee Kuan Yew. He's the whole reason why Singapore is the way that it is. He developed that what's called the Economic Development Bureau, and it was a it was a bureau. It was a it was a administrative workforce within the Singaporean government, and they are responsible for lifting millions of people out of poverty. Like this one government bureau that worked to organize the entire um, city-state, I suppose you could call it, um, so that it would attract foreign investment, then the foreign investment would be taxed, and the taxes would be used to uh, make the population of Singapore more well-off. And the foreign investment would also create more jobs and economic stability for the country. Um, and so they went from uh, being a place where there was, you know, poverty and sort of like, not necessarily widespread disease, but they weren't doing as well as they are now to now they're like the gateway to the East, you know? 
Um, so some, some pretty exciting stuff. So you're going there or you plan to go there to study how that, that culture or that organization formed and had this transformative effect on all society. I am going there because, uh, there is a book written by my favorite scholar, uh, Edgar Schein about the organizational culture of, uh, the economic development bureau. And, um, I'm going there to study to see if any of the um, cultural elements that he talks about in his book are still present in that society today. Mm. Um, I think it's like 60 plus years later. So wait, did he write, was he an ethnographer or? Um, he is lauded as the father of organizational culture. Okay. The whole field. But I don't know. I don't for better or for worse, he's he's lauded as the father figure of that. Okay. Now, just tying this back to to BDA senior studies, what like ex what classes do you take to like study something like this? Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. So, um, I am taking. Let's see. Some anthropology classes, mostly classes on research and how to conduct research. Mm. What I'm trying to get down to with this whole idea of organizational culture is like, is it possible to create sort of, you know, how Einstein came up with the general theory of relativity. It can pretty much be written down on a scrap of paper and it yeah. means what it means no matter where you read it. Um, unless you're in like a black hole. But unless you're in a black hole. Yeah, they're working on Yeah, it. quantum mechanics. Yeah. <laughs> a little different there. But um, yeah, like you can read it in... Uh, Dubai, you can read it in Germany, you can oh, read it in... Yeah, that's what you mean. Yeah, and it <laughs> and it means the same thing no matter where you read it in the context of those countries. Mm. So I'm really fascinated by culture and seeing if there is a theory of general relativity for culture. And if it's possible to um, figure out how to curate a society in a way that makes it the most fulfilling possible place to live and work. Mm. So you're trying to kind of, I don't want to say hack the system, but you're trying to become more aware of these like third level underlying values so you can kind of manipulate them into meet a more... I want to I want to write the rule book. So like right now at UMass, we have, a, we have a rule book for how to operate as students. There's a rule book for how to operate as an administrator, a rule book for how to operate as a professor. Whether it's explicit or not, mm. there are rules around those things um and it might actually be more helpful to some people if there were real rules written down for how to engage with the system and that way you, you can sort of like stress test it and um and operate efficiently um so i'm really curious about like going back to dungeons and dragons how dungeons and dragons does a great job of creating a whole system of world building that is understood across pretty much the entire game i'm interested in not necessarily like writing a rule book for the world but writing like a user manual for um for culture mm. does that make sense yeah so you're trying to um and just interesting so you're trying to like kind of find this um universal underlying yes. theory of culture so like yes that's interesting because like I study like it's called like the perennial philosophy and like it's the idea that like most like major world religions like have the same they come from the same core exactly. spiritual core they exactly. just manifest differently you're trying to find that with culture which is like religion and culture are obviously entwined mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that's a blurry like line of well it's an expression of yeah. culture right so you're trying to find that that core of like what what is culture yes that's, that's a hard hard one and that's like I think a lot of well, my other friends do that. Well, I do that with like nature, because like mm -hmm. nature, culture, those are so mm -hmm. sacred geometry. Is yeah, one. it's like a rabbit hole to go down. Those words are so nebulous, and they can mean you can make them mean anything. I can I can make culture mean anything. I can mm -hmm. make nature mean anything. Like you can pull like language semantics can do that with most words, but like, right. specifically those are like the mo like two extremely complicated like words that like we can't even really define. And it's it's difficult because language's greatest strength is also a, simultaneously its greatest weakness in that the interpretation of language allows you to both express a large variety of ideas using 
few of the same words and intonation. And it's also weak in that when you, uh, when you try and communicate, the, the, the burden is on the interpreter, you yeah. know? So if you, if I try to write an operational definition for organizational culture, there are a couple of words that can mean different things to different people and they might interpret it in a way that I didn't necessarily mean. So is it possible to write the theory with like numbers and symbols that mean the same mm. thing across every society and culture? And if that's if that's possible, like that's kind of what I'm aiming for. Oh, so you're like you're trying to boil it down like an equation, like a universally understood. Because like if you wrote out in English, obviously that's like, well, shit, I have to translate that now. Yes. That leaves room right. for interpretation. That goes against the whole premise. But mm -hmm. like a number is a number. I can't argue what two. Well, I'm sure you could find a way to argue what two means. But for effective purposes, like yes, interest. Wow. So you're that's like you're trying to get to the answer of humanity. I'm trying to like, get to the root, baby. That's the thing. Well, well, college is the place to, to try and do that. <laughs> it's, that's a that's a heavy rock to lift, my friend. That's a boulder. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be fun, though. You know, it's something that I can keep uh, cracking away at my entire life. Mm, yeah. And that's kind of, that's sort of the, the direction that my life has taken. I'm, I'm still trying to answer the question that came to me in the fields with those Romanians is what is culture? I'm mm. still trying to answer that because... There are a thousand definitions for it. Which one is right? I don't know. I really don't. And so, like, how do we write something that is universally true about culture that is also all-encompassing? Mm. That's one of the challenges about, um, you know, write, writing an equation, <laughs> it's... This is this is where the conversation gets really abstract. Um, the more broad you can, the the more broad you try and go with a with a definition or an explanation of something, the more vague in your language you have to be. Mm -hmm. So how do you balance uh, breadth with specificity at the same time? How do I write something that's all-encompassing and super-duper specific and yeah. impossible to misinterpret? Well, I think that's that's also a problem when you like you you hit a frontier of language. And it's like what I'm trying to explain like does not exist. Like the words for this doesn't exist. And this is like a problem like people run into with like psychedelics. It's like you reach a state like where you're at a level where like language doesn't reach. So it's like our language is obviously like third dimensional. How can I describe the fourth dimension with a third dimensional language? Like th that doesn't make sense. How can I describe this layer that like our language isn't? It's a the tool isn't meant to work on this like system. Yes. And it's trying to make that work is so difficult and hard because you can either your choices are either like radically blunt what you're trying to say intentionally for the purpose of like communication or sound crazy because no one understands what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to straddle that balance where like having that like that specificity and the breath, the and, breath. Yeah, being broadly. Applicable. But you also have to completely understand that yourself to be able to articulate it, which we don't. Amen. So in summary, <laughs> to summarize yeah. this entire podcast, uh, let's see, three levels of cultural analysis. You're going to have physical universe. Uh, observable artifacts, uh, and then espouse values, and then third level is underlying assumptions, and that's the deepest root. Um, the another thing that we talked about is the difficulty of um, breadth versus specificity, uh, and then let's see uh, if you want to change a norm, make it explicit, make the ideal explicit, and then hopefully by uh, repeatedly doing the ideal behavior people will adapt and mm. begin to do the ideal behavior with you and i think those are really the big three areas that we covered on today's podcast well daniel thank you so much for being on it's been a pleasure um to close i have two important questions for you all right let's hear them. if you had one song to share with everyone listening what would it be yes i'm putting you on the spot and if you have one quote that you think 
someone out there would benefit from hearing? What would it be? All right. Well, let me answer the quote first. This is one that I write down all the time and one that I've been writing down for, geez, as long as I can remember. And that is, uh, behold the compound interest of small good things done consistently. Small good things do add up. Can you repeat that one more time? Behold the compound interest of small good things done consistently. I like that. Yeah. Who's that by? Do you know? This guy right here. You're you? At That's him. you? That was me. I love it. Yeah. Fun stuff. Um, and then the other... What's the song that I have to share yeah. with everybody? I have to. You can uh, pass. No, 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 no. I need, I need this. Let's see. Um... Ah, oh, one of Rachmaninoff's. Dun, 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 bum, 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 bum. Ah, what's the name of it? The Bells? You're thinking too hard. I just need one song. Go. Ah, Rapid Fire. Weird Fishes by Radiohead. Weird Fishes by Radiohead. All right, folks. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, our guest was Daniel Keating Jr. Um, we will see you, or hear you, or you'll hear us next time. <laughs> Peace. Peace.